electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Scott, thank you very much, and good afternoon, everyone. I'm Tyler Matheson, in for Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead on The Exchange. The latest round of economic data shows signs of the cooling the Fed has been hoping for, but that's not enough to convince our strategists that the U.S. can avoid a recession. Why he says stocks are in a, quote, jury duty market, We'll explain what that means and how he's positioning now. And we're one step closer to a spot Bitcoin ETF, thanks to yesterday's federal court decision. In an exclusive interview, the chief policy officer of Coinbase will tell us the impact on both the company and the crypto industry more broadly. Plus, privacy, pets, and pricing. We will tackle CrowdStrike, Chewy, and Dollar General in today's earnings exchange. But we begin with today's market action. For that, we go to Bob Pisani at the New York Stock Exchange. Hey, Bob. Hello, Tyler. Uh, up three days in a row, and that's because of Goldilocks economic data. Look what we're getting here. Weaker jolt report, ADP report a little weaker. So there's the Goldilocks. Slightly weaker job growth, slightly weaker wage growth, but not too weak. You got three days in a row. Look, all three major indices up three days in a row. Dow's been led up this week really by a whole bunch of different stocks. Nike's up. Apple's up 5%, believe it or not. Verizon's up. Only consumer discretion, uh, consumer staples like Coke, Procter & Gamble not going many places. S&P still the same thing. Three days in a row. Broad rally. The equal weight S&P is up just as much as the market cap weighted S&P. That shows you the broad rally coming out. Remember, this started in, the, in August, broad rally, and then it kind of thinned out. Now it's broadening out again. The Nasdaq's actually the big leader. Nasdaq 100's up 3.5% this week. That's because, well, remember the old bosses, big tech names? They're the new bosses. Again, same story here. Just take a look at some of the big cap tech names this week. Believe it or not, NVIDIA's back up. Tesla's up new high there. Uh, Micron, this is the week, really? And even home builders are back because we have more stable interest rate scenarios. So pull deal and R have been creeping up the last three or four days. I just want to show you a, a one-month chart of the S&P because this is really a tale of two completely different months. We had the first half where we were basically straight down, particularly in tech stocks. We bottomed in the middle around August 18th, and we're almost straight up then. That's when the economic news started turning around the middle of the month. Uh, so we're up about 3.5% from the lows on August 18th. And if you want a simple graphic, well, that's what we're here for. That's what we do. Take a look at what happened. In the first half of the month, we saw some different changes here. We saw essentially stronger economic data. Rates moved higher and stocks move lower. That was the first half of August. In the second half, all this flipped around. We have Goldilocks data here, just the way the market wants it. Rates have stabilized and stocks have moved higher. That's simply the way to understand August. How about September? Well, if you want issues to worry about, stocks are still expensive. Rates still feel like they could creep higher on a few stronger economic reports, and China's definitely weaker. We're gonna have to deal with that. But for the moment, it's really turning out roses, at least for the second half of this month. Tyler, back to you. All right, Bob, thank you very much. This morning's economic data led to a sharp drop in yields with the 10-year hitting its lowest level in more than two weeks. Steve Leisman has the numbers and what it could all mean for the Fed's next move. How do we interpret these numbers, Steve? 
You know, I think the way to think about it is the data, Tyler, is breaking in favor of a soft landing this morning, but weaker, but not necessarily weak in suggesting an easing of price pressures, especially from the labor market. ADP coming in 177,000. Estimate was 200,000. It's the lowest number we've had since March. And I'm interested always in the ADP wage data. If you're staying in your job, your average annual increase is 5.9%. That's the slowest pace of growth since October 2021. Then we had GDP being knocked down a little bit, still above potential at 2.1%. And the price index down a tenth. The core also down a tenth. 3.7%. So all moving in the right direction. ADP data adds to the Jolter, the job openings report we got yesterday, suggesting an easing in the type labor market because the quit rates uh, fell. All of this prompting the market to back off expectations for a November rate hike. 56% on Friday afternoon after Powell spoke in Jackson Hole. Now it's 45%. So I suspect we'll be bouncing either side of the 50-point line as data come in hotter or cooler. All of this tees up tomorrow's reports for July consumer spending and inflation numbers, the PCE and the PCE price index, and of course Friday's August jobs report in hopes that despite record temperatures on the ground, the economy cooled enough this summer to allow the Fed to chill out in the fall, Tyler. All right, Steve, thanks very much. Stick around. Our next guest sees signs of a mild recession on the horizon and the Fed to pause in September, but hike rates in November. Let's bring in Steve Odland, CEO of the Conference Board, for more on the uh, impact of rate hikes on both the economy and on business. Uh, Steve Odland, let me begin with you. Uh, Your consumer confidence index fell more than expected in August after two straight monthly uh, increases. What does this say to you about the spirit of the U.S. consumer and where have these fall offs in confidence been most pronounced? Higher incomes, middle or lower? Yeah, it, it's an interesting economy. As Steve said, you know, things are just kind of rocking a little bit up, a little bit down. Goldilocks, you know, it's everybody's sort of waiting here to see when's this recession going to happen. And the consumer is part of that. The Consumer Confidence Index from the Conference Board fell in August after two straight months of increases in in June and July. It fell predominantly because of food and gas prices, a, a familiar theme here. As people went to the pumps, they had to put more in, and all of a sudden they're getting a little nervous that maybe inflation is continuing to uh, to hurt their pocketbooks. But now it's back down to kind of where it was a few months ago. So. The consumer is sitting here waiting. Jobs are a little bit weaker, but they still feel pretty good about their own job situation. And you still have about 10 million openings and you've got skill set shortages in certain areas. So a little bit of confidence there in their own situation, but a little worried about the future. The weakness in consumer confidence was across every demographic group, every age group, every income group. So it was this is really just a generalized uh, point of view based on the the current feeling here at the end of the summer. And I guess also of note is the idea, Steve Odland, that the numbers for prior months were revised downward as well. I often look at these numbers and I and I and I read in them a a sort of sense that I'm okay, but you're not. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, look, you know, the Fed was looking at, you know, super inflation, what, a year and a half ago. You took over 500 basis points worth of increases. We had 91 percent of our CEOs saying there's going to be a recession. And we had 101 percent of economists saying there's going to be a recession. CEOs throttled back. But they're all everybody saying, where's the recession? Let's go. Let's have it over with. But it's it's sort of sitting in here at a 2 percent growth rate. You know, revisions up in the first, down in the second. 
but it's sitting here around 2%. Inflation's on its way down from 3%. So maybe this soft landing that is this mythical soft landing could happen here. But we still think at the conference board there's going to be one more 25 basis point rate hike in November, and then that'll be it. And it could start then coming down, you know, six months later, which is the typical gap. So I think everybody's sort of settling in here saying we're almost there. Steve uh, Leisman, what are the surveys that you um, uh, supervise telling you about consumer confidence about the economy and the likelihood or the, the perceived likelihood of a, of a recession? Well, first of all, I'd say the overall uh, takeaway has been that inflation is the most important thing out there. People do not seem to give the economy credit for the job market, and, and they, they really uh, have focused on inflation being the number one uh, reason why, uh, for number one reason for pessimism. That along, of course, with partisanship is a huge part of all of these consumer surveys. Uh, so you have to kind of put that aside and kind of uh, factor that in. Um, the other thing that we have, we did see in the last quarterly survey we did, Tyler, something of an uptick. People seem to be feeling the lower inflation rate, at least things not accelerating as much as they had been, but still relatively depressed. For the level of economic growth we've had and the low level of unemployment, people's attitudes towards the economy has been a little incongruous, I guess is the best way to put it. And it's unclear to me if bringing down the level of inflation is enough to turn around consumer confidence. At the same time, you have to wonder, Tyler, how much, at least on a short-term basis, these confidence numbers matter because spending has been fairly robust. And I'll be very interested to see that July data tomorrow that's going to tell us, did the strong spending we saw that ended the second quarter, did it continue into the third, into the third quarter? And one of the things that could be out there as an outlier is you have that Amazon Prime Day, which seems to affect spending mm. in July. Yeah, that's an interesting point, Steve Adon. Let me let you tie it off here. Uh, Steve Leisman makes the point that sometimes sentiment is not necessarily perfectly correlated with behavior. Yeah, and Steve is absolutely right on that. You know, I think you have to look at, at consumer balance sheets, and there was a lot of cash sitting here from uh, from the uh, the pandemic incentives. That's worked its way down. You've got consumer credit. Uh, rising. You've got the cost of credit cards rising. It's, it's up above 20%. You've got, you know, um, rates on mortgages that are, what, seven, seven and a half percent. So, uh, you know, you've got to feel like the housing market's going to continue to soften and that the consumer should at some point run out of this cash here and then have to go paycheck to paycheck. So I think what we've got here is we've got everybody kind of waiting. Is it over? When's it over? And how's it going to land before we start investing in uh, again? And, uh, you know, this is reliant on the consumer to carry us until that happens. All right, Steve Leisman, final last word to you. Any any final thought? Yeah, very very quickly, let me spend this uh, a second to agree with Steve Otto when he uh, points out the issue of higher rates, also you have higher delinquency rates. Offsetting that was a really curious number in the GDP report today, which showed that real disposable income was revised up in the second quarter by 0.8%. So, yes, sentiment may be lousy, interest rates may be high, but people seem to have at least the cash or the cash flow with which to spend. All right, uh, Steve and Steve, thank you very much. Odland and Leesman, we appreciate it, guys. All right, economic data may bolster some hopes of a soft landing, but our next guest is not buying it, saying he expects a recession and likens the current market environment to getting selected for jury duty. 
Joining us now to explain is Andy Capron, partner at Corient, a wealth advisor with $147 billion under management. Andy, what do you mean by a jury duty market uh, or environment that we're in right now? Sure. So I, I, I came up with a story because this summer I received a jury duty summons. It's an important civic duty, but it can be a little bit frustrating because you get this little, little uh, postcard in the mail saying, hold these two dates, don't go anywhere else. We might expect you to show up to court, but you don't know until the night before when you have to call a number to find out whether you actually come in. You actually come in, you don't know if it's a big trial or a small trial or whether the attorneys even want you on. So a lot of uncertainty, but you're on notice that something could happen. Investors got a recession summons. A lot of uncertainty, but they're on notice that something can happen. And I think the way but you manage- But it might not. But it might not. And I think the way that you manage through those, uh, through those two envi environments have a lot in common. You get a jury duty notice, you, st you stay in town, you stay local. You don't plan an exotic trip because they might need you. So what does that mean for asset allocation? Stay local, stay in the US, because when the US catches a cold, much of the rest of the world loses an arm. So avoid international allocations unless they're in very durable and more safe exposures. Um, when you go to court, dress comfortably. The seating is uncomfortable. The buildings are old and drafty. Bring layers, dress comfortably. In a portfolio, the best way to dress comfortably, in my opinion, is an allocation to U.S. Treasury bonds, which are offering some of their highest yields in over 15 years. An allocation meaning what percentage? Would that be a higher than normal allocation? If you were normally 10% in Treasury bonds, would you be up at 30% where? I think a higher than normal one, uh, potentially bump it up uh, by 10% relative to where you've been. And I think in particular, a lot of investors have gotten used to doing what's worked for them. Past 15 years, what has worked for them? Owning stocks and avoiding bonds at very low interest rates. Interest rates have risen so quickly. I think a lot of investors are not fully aware of how much that dynamic has changed. So a good foundation would be to have a, a more than normal uh, um, slug of treasuries, and I assume you're talking about one years and less, or what? I would actually consider adding some duration, adding mm -hmm. some longer-term really? treasury bonds, potentially as far out as 10 years, because what is beneficial about longer-term interest rates isn't, uh, isn't, of course, that they're higher today. They're actually a little bit lower because the, the bond market is upside yeah. down. The yield curve is inverted. But that is not a measure of value. It's not telling you be in short-term bonds because they yield more. What it's telling you is it's a prediction. It means that interest rates are more likely to fall than they All right, are so dress comfortably, uh, wear layers, <laughs> which in this case means treasuries, uh, and layer them into the portfolio. What about equities? What we have seen so far in 2023 is the resurgence of the mega caps, mm -hmm. uh, the NVIDIAs, the Microsofts, and so forth. Uh, is that the safe haven now, or is something else the safe haven in case we do have uh, what I think you're pro projecting as a rel relatively mild recession. So what I think has happened this year is mega caps have rallied, in my opinion, on the back of two items. One is um, they're a more conservative play on average. They tend to maintain their value better in a recession that was demonstrated in particular in 2020. Um, but I think the other reason is a lot of the first initial hype, but subsequent follow through on AI. Now, what, what's the third thing you want to do when you get a jury duty summons is keep your plans open because the night before you might call and, might, and, they, might tell, and they might let you off the hook. So long story short, I got a jury duty summons. I called them the night before. They did, in fact, let me off the hook, and I had two beautiful days booked, off, booked completely on my calendar. So what did I do? I took my kids to the beach. What should investors do if they get let off the hook on this recession? 
Well, they should consider allocating to smaller companies. Smaller companies, historically more dangerous, more volatility, more downside in a recession. But if one doesn't happen, what I see in small caps today is historically very low valuations and a lot of potential for a surge. So smaller caps, which have not really participated the way the mega caps have. I mean, it really has been uh, the big boys and, and everybody else. So that would be a place, a, a target of opportunity. And at the same time, as you say, as you look at the possibility of a recession, you would uh, steer clear uh, or reduce allocations to international equities. That is correct. Yeah. What about in the small cap universe? Are there any standout sectors uh, or can you just be small and just sort of buy a small cap uh, index fund? So I think you can buy a small cap index fund, but when you buy an index fund, you should remember that you're buying the underlying companies and the underlying sectors within it. Small caps stand out in two ways. They're relatively more heavy in industrial companies, which of mm -hmm. course is mm -hmm. where they get a lot of their cyclical sensitivity. They're also relatively more heavy in small and mid-sized banks, kind of in the Fed's crosshairs with interest rates maintain their currently high levels. They've had a really hard time funding themselves in the current environment. Um, some economic weakness without a recession could actually be beneficial to them because it would allow the Fed, in my opinion, to cut rates. So would you want a, a small cap fund, let's say, as opposed to an ETF, that would be light on, on the regional banks? Would you look for that? So I would actually go with an ETF um, because mm -hmm. ETFs tend to structure their portfolios very thoughtfully. They organize around very large numbers of companies, hundreds, sometimes thousands. Uh, but here's the kicker. There's two broad indices that investors recognize within uh, small caps, S&P 600, Russell 2000. Russell 2000, of course, the broader gauge as the number implies, S&P 600 more selective. And what they select on includes profitability measures, which, in my opinion, makes it a more durable allocation. All right, Andy, thank you. Um, I hope you don't uh, get called for jury duty anytime soon. Andy Kaplan, we appreciate it. All right, coming up, Commerce Secretary Raimondo wrapping up her four-day visit to Shanghai and Beijing. Our Eunice Yoon spoke with her exclusively and brings us the headlines from that interview. But first, CrowdStrike having its best year since 2020. Chewy on track for its worst month in more than a year. And Dollar General on pace for its first negative year ever. We'll get you ready for those reports on earnings exchange next. The exchange is back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.
All right, welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Believe it or not, still some big earnings names on deck. Today, uh, we're looking ahead to reports from CrowdStrike, Chewy, and Dollar General. Here with our trades is Chris Grisanti, Chief Equity Strategist at MAI Capital Management. Chris, welcome. Good to have you with us. Let's begin with CrowdStrike. Shares are up more than 40% this year. Morgan Stanley downgrading the stock ahead of results, citing slowdowns in two key verticals, tech and retail, as well as cloud consumption headwinds. Morgan also sees limited upside in free cash flow. Do you like CrowdStrike or not? You know, Tyler, it's good to be with you again. And as you know, that's not our kind of stock, but I kind of like the setup for CrowdStrike here. People want to own this stock in this type of tech market, except for AI. Cybersecurity is the hottest area of tech. The second thing CrowdStrike has going forward is expectations are finally low enough, I think, that they're going to be easy to clear. They may be realistic or even a little pessimistic. The metric to look for is net annual recurring revenue, and it's still supposed to shrink about 15% this quarter. So even a smaller shrinkage of, say, 10 to 12%, which is what I'm expecting, should be seen as good news. But the other important factor about CrowdStrike is that the second half, it's back-end loaded. So they need to make their numbers by doing much better in the second half than the first. That's an easy thing to say back in the first quarter, but it gets a little tougher in the middle of August. So we're really going to be looking at how the second half is progressing. If they pushed back a little further, that's going to be a negative. But I think the setup is good, and I like it here. Well, let's move uh, on to the next one, which is the online pet food and supplies retailer Chewy, also out after the bell. Shares uh, on a downtrend recently, falling about 30 percent after the past two months as we see signs of slowing discretionary spending. Uh, cats and dogs are just not spending as much. Uh, Piper Sandler noting recent weakness in net user additions, but uh, did not. Uh, it's uh, seen impressive margin improvements in recent quarters. Uh, you, uh, you think Chewy is a bit of a hairball here, right? Yeah, you know, I, I think the post-COVID pet hangover, you know, we, we all bought pets during COVID and now, you know, we're, we're not buying as many pets and we're not servicing those pets as, as much as we used to. I think that's going to continue. So you're absolutely right. And Piper Sandler's right to focus on the customer additions. That's going to be the stat that people care about. Mm-hmm. Um and without some growth there, the stock, which is currently at 50 times earnings, I, you know, I just wouldn't get in front of it. So that's the negative. The positive thing is that the management's pretty good here, and they've been very forthright about the issues. So expectations are low. But don't forget, last week, Petco reported disappointing earnings, and the stock got clobbered. So I think this is still a show-me story that's going to take a few more quarters to work out. I'd look elsewhere. Show me the Chewy. All right. Don't miss the uh, CEO, by the way, of Chewy on closing bell overtime uh, following those results. That is at 4 p.m. or thereabouts Eastern time. And finally, Chris, we go to Dollar General. It's out before the bell tomorrow. Shares of the discount retailer falling more than 20 percent since June. The street keeping an eye on sales performances as discounters are expected to outperform in a slowdown. But Oppenheimer staying cautious, expecting weather-related challenges uh, to seasonal offerings and moving its expectations then to the low end of management's full-year guidance. Your take, Chris, on Dollar General. Tyler, this is a classic example of how the street will uh, kind of psych you in and out of expectations. I, I think 
I'm not expecting great news from Dollar General, but I expect the stock to be just fine. And the reason is this stock has gotten the expectations beaten out of it. They, they missed last quarter. The stock was down 15 percent. Dollar Tree reported last week and got clobbered. This stock was down, too. So already lowered expectations mean that mediocre earnings will be met with a big sigh of relief and the stock could rebound. So I like the setup here. This is a good management company. I think this is the best dollar store out there. And so you can buy it for a 10-year low P.E. ratio. I think it's a good setup. I think the statistic to look for here is not the earnings. It's going to be the same store sales. And the street is expecting a mediocre 1, 1 1.5% growth. I think anything worse than that or better than that We'll move the stock. Is this a trade or an investment, Chris? No, I think this is an investment. I think this is a chance to buy something that could grow for five years and get a terrific entry price. They've got store openings that they that there's still tons of room for store openings. And, and we like the stock. We own it in size. All right. Thanks very much, Chris Crisanti. We appreciate it. All right. Coming Thanks, up, Tom. Coinbase and Bitcoin rallying after yesterday's court ruling paved the way for a Bitcoin ETF later on. We'll speak with Coinbase's chief policy officer about that decision and the company's next steps as it navigates the evolving crypto environment. The exchange is back after this. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to The Exchange. I'm Contessa Brewer. Here's your CNBC News update. Hurricane Adalia has officially shifted toward Georgia as a Category 1 storm. The National Hurricane Center says Adalia is now delivering damaging wind about 85 miles an hour to the southern part of the state. In Florida, where the hurricane made landfall as a Category 3, state officials say they're now starting to get an idea of the true impact. We're still assessing what is all going on on the ground in the places that had the, the initial impact. Governor Ron DeSantis says urban search and rescue teams have been deployed to areas affected by the storm and about a quarter of a million Floridians are without power. According to the governor, he says crews are hard at work to try to get the power back up. Tampa is dealing with flooded streets and city officials say the airport was spared, saw only minimal damage. It will reopen this afternoon. In fact, flights will start landing at the city's airport after 4 p.m. Departures will resume tomorrow. The airport shut down Tuesday ahead of the hurricane's arrival. That is the latest on the storm, but we'll keep our eye on it from here. Tyler. All right, Contessa, thank you very much. And coming up, Commerce Secretary Raimondo says companies are complaining that China has become uninvestable. But will Beijing make any policy changes to attract American businesses? That's next. And a quick programming note, don't miss Democratic presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. on Last Call. That's tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern. The exchange is back after this.
Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo's trip to China wrapped up earlier today with promises from both countries to keep discussions open about business and security concerns. Yunus Yun had an exclusive sit-down with Secretary Raimondo in Shanghai and joins us now with the highlights. Hi, Yunus. Hey, Tyler. I'm outside of the, um, the hotel where the U.S. delegation had stayed. They are now long gone, along with the Commerce Secretary, who left here describing her trip as productive. Um, after a very busy time here in Shanghai, where she uh, visited uh, several places that really are symbolizing uh, U.S.-China cooperation, uh, such as uh, Shanghai Disneyland, uh, the NYU campus here, as well as a Boeing facility, um, she talked a lot about the message that she really wanted to drive home to the Chinese. And in my exclusive interview, I asked her about the concerns that many U.S. companies have had and expressed to her about China potentially becoming uninvestable. And she said that she told the Chinese what they could do to try to rebuild confidence. Actions speak louder than words. You know, in all of my meetings, speaking with the premier and the vice premier, they were gracious, they were open, they said that China uh, wants to uh, embrace American business. So now let's back that up with concrete action. I also asked about the cases of Micron Intel, as well as Chinese export curbs on uh, two key metals, about being a possible Chinese policy to retaliate against U.S. companies for her department's export controls. I think that that retaliation, if it is retaliation, isn't good. Like, that isn't the way to build confidence or attract U.S. foreign direct investment. She also told me that a Boeing deal would be a good way for the Chinese to show action that they are trying to rebuild trust. All right. Uh, Eunice Yoon, thank you very much. Eunice reporting from Shanghai. We appreciate that. Our next guest says that while Secretary Raimondo stated she stood her ground during her visit to China, things may play out differently in the coming months here in the U.S. Joining us now, Derek Scissors, Asia economist at the American Enterprise Institute. Mr. Scissors, welcome. Good to have you with us. My sense uh, of my read of your verdict on this, uh, on this trip is that it was pretty weak tea indeed. Yeah, I mean, it's not clear why these trips are occurring. Obviously, Secretary Yellen went, Secretary Blinken went. Uh, we have to have a dialogue with China. You know, you can have a dialogue with China over a Zoom call or a phone call. Um, so th there's that problem. Uh, I think the important part of, of the trip is actually after Secretary Raimondo comes home. She has a very big decision with regard to semiconductor export controls that is due in the next five weeks or so, both the rules and the licenses. Uh, that's going to impact U.S.-China economic relations uh, and, and, and also possibly strategic relations much more than her trip will. So, so tease this out for me, this decision of the, of the export controls, which have been much talked about and much trumpeted, and the actual licenses uh, could be – there's a way, isn't there, to say, yes, we're going to have these export controls in place, but allow the licenses to proceed, which would sort of obviate the, the controls, right? Now, that's actually what we've been doing. I mean, we, we put these interim controls on uh, as an interim rule in October of last year. Uh, that was a step uh, in, in what I consider to be the right direction, but it was certainly a step in a, in a clear direction. But then we handed out three exemptions to major foreign chip makers, TSMC, Hynix, uh, and Samsung. 
if we pass a really tough final rule, if, that, if that's what the secretary decides, but we say, oh, except for these three huge chip makers, then there's no point to the final rule. So there are two decisions here, what the rule should look like, but also if you're going to hand out license exemptions, then the rule doesn't matter anymore. So if, you, if you're going to go down this route, you, you would argue that you need to be, make it a blanket uh, enforcement of uh, export controls, not only from U.S. companies selling into China, but for these uh, three foreign companies. That's right. I mean, the, the Biden administration talks a lot about small yard, high fence. But if you say, all right, here's our rule and it's tough and we're, we're protecting these particular things, in this case, semiconductors. But we say, except for three very large companies, then you have giant holes in your fence and it doesn't make any sense. So uh, people will focus on the rule as they should. Uh, we're, we've been waiting a long time for the final rule, but the bigger decision is actually whether these licenses are going to be extended, in which case Secretary Raimondo you know, should stop saying she's being tough on China. So what did Secretary Raimondo or the U.S. get out of this trip, if anything? Oh, I, I can't imagine they got much of anything. Again, the Biden administration seems to value these trips for the sake of having the trips. They even say that we, the world expects us to keep communicating. Um, I don't know why communication would, would by itself be a good thing. Uh, China's own course is being decided by Xi Jinping. Um, he doesn't like the private sector. He doesn't like foreign companies. Nothing important is going to change in that respect because a U.S. cabinet member visited. Does does. But, but yeah, I'm going to pick up on something you said there. I don't know why sort of communication is a good thing in and of itself. But is the opposite potentially worse? No communication. Well, on the and security, doesn't that increase the, yeah. the, the possibility of misunderstandings and, and so forth? Well, on the security side, I can see this. But, you know, we, we talk about our economic policy steps for months and months. We're, you know, not 10 months into the export control decision. It's not like the Chinese don't hear us discussing it. They don't mm -hmm. know what's going on. It's a big surprise. Outbound investment decision that Secretary Yellen had was two years in the making. So I just don't see that there's this big chance of an important misunderstanding about U.S. policy because U.S. economic policy, with good reason, proceeds very slowly. Derek, always good to see you. Thank you for your insights today. We appreciate it. Thank you. You're very welcome. All right, China is sure to be on the agenda at CNBC's annual, annual Delivering Alpha event. It's just four weeks away, September 28th. In fact, less than four weeks, less than a month, uh, but there's still time to register. You can scan the QR code on the screen or you can go to CNBCEvents.com. We have a very good lineup indeed. And coming up, investors may want to think twice before buying a buzzy thematic fund. We'll tell you why next. The Exchange will be right back. Those disturbing noises that they play there. But anyway, anyway, uh, welcome back, everybody. Even as investors have poured money into stocks this year, exchange-traded funds are closing at a record pace as some of those more niche funds struggle to attract investors. Deidre Bose and Kate Rooney have been uh, covering this uh, over in the San Francisco Bureau. Let's go out and have them join us now. Hey, guys, take it away. Well, Tyler, niche is really the key word here, right, Kate? Over the last few years, it felt like there was an ETF for everything. And 
when you're thinking about shorting a company or another ETF, it provided maybe a more straightforward way, but it turns out they weren't all that sustainable. There was, what was there, the Gen Z ETF, the yep. Metaverse ETF, the cannabis-themed ETF, all gone. Completely. ETF for everything. These niche, niche, whatever you want to say, ETFs. It feels like it, they were chasing some of this momentum and as a result, some of them really got into the top. So yeah. if they launched, a, say, it's a Metaverse ETF, a cannabis ETF, they're so thematic that they tend to launch when there's a lot of buzz around that. And you can see with stock prices, that tends to also coincide with the peak. They had these crypto ETFs, inverse ETFs. One interesting trend, though, rates is a big part of this. Yeah. So higher rates just make the opportunity cost a lot higher for some of these non-profitable tech companies that we talk about a lot. But the 10-year above 4.25, that hasn't happened since 08. Bond ETFs were a thing back then, but not nearly to the level that they are now. I think there's something like, well, Strategis had some numbers on this. 61 bond ETFs in 08. There's more than 600 now. That is the area. Money market funds, bond ETFs, the boring ETFs that really It's, it's such a reflection a of where yeah. we are in the markets. It's that it's no longer sort of the buzzy ones. But I'm looking at the AGG inflows over the last year of, I think, $14 billion. So these are huge. But also, you think about what's been leading the market this year, it's been the mega caps, the Magnificent Seven. So you think you could just put your money into the QQQ versus trying to pick out, I mean, you and I were talking, like, what's even in the Gen Z <laughs> ETF? You look it up and it's Tesla. Okay, a lot of folks want to hold Tesla, but do they want to hold it with Duolingo right. and some of the other ones that people are, and the fees is another is another issue. That's a great point, right. As a Gen Z investor, you might say, well, I can pick my own stocks. Thank you very much. I don't need you to tell me that that Duolingo is a Gen Z name. But really interesting, it also speaks to some of the investor psychology out there of wanting to pick single stocks versus having this broad-based ETF. And we also learned earlier in the year that stock picking can be hard. So you see when macro trends shift, I was talking to someone from Piper Sandler about this, you see whether it's talking about the Fed minutes or OPEC, you see when that's going on, and that's the big macro conversation, people really flow into just broad-based ETFs. When the market's going up, people kind of feel like they're smart. They want to get into single stock names, and you see that with NVIDIA. The other point uh, that they made was that there's a lot of money going into leverage and derivatives. So they're seeing flows up way above 2019 levels hmm. when it comes to options, futures, derivatives. Right. And it's also a sign of risk that people want to take that risk on. When you look at the sheer numbers, so this year so far, there's been nearly 200 ETF closures. In 2022, it was 142. So we're actually on pace now to see the most number closed, that maybe record that we've ever seen. And it's not, though, that investors want passively managed ETFs. Yep. You actually see actively managed ETFs from someone that's becoming bigger on the scene, like a JP Morgan Chase. Yep. So. It's very nuanced here, but I think the buzzy stuff is no longer sort of as attractive. But you know, I know one that you've covered closely, meme stocks, yeah. right? And there's even an ETF for memes, and it's actually, it actually hasn't performed badly this year. It's interesting. Some of the bigger asset managers are just the ones that are able to lower fees and have the scale to maybe lose money and use these as a loss leader. And so it speaks to some of the competition among asset managers. But interesting, I mean, meme stocks do really tend to be a barometer for risk, and, and you're seeing that return. But right. for, they want to buy single stocks. Also, zero commissions is a big part of this. We don't talk about a lot that commissions went to zero before the pandemic, and there's also fractional trading. Right. So if you want to pick stocks, you can buy 10 bucks worth of NVIDIA. And five years ago, that just wasn't an Versus option. Versus paying an ETF fee, right, to Kathy Woods and even the ARC? 
ETF has seen outflows over the last year. Tyler, jump in here. You know, I, I guess I, I have a couple of reactions. Number one, I, on the face of it, nothing seems like a worse idea to me than a Gen <laughs> Z-oriented <laughs> ETF. I mean, it feels so random. Disagree. I mean, how, how do you do that? And, and I, I guess I'm, then that goes, secondly, to, things are a thing, you know, you guys said that. It's a thing until it stops being a thing. And then when it stops <laughs> being a thing, it's all over, game, set, match, and the, and the whole thing. And, and, the whole thing. And then, and then the third thing I, is, when does a, an ETF stop being an ETF when it becomes a managed ETF? Isn't it then just a mutual fund, or is it the... <laughs> Is it the ability to price the ETF minute by minute that is the distinction there? You know, Tyler, it's such a good question. And to answer the first part of it, I mean, if money is coming out of the ARC ETF, who wants the short ARC ETF, right? It feels like there was this opportunity. We've seen this in so many different financial products, and mm -hmm. it's really a theme of the last few years that, you know, people who have ETF companies can get a lot of attention by making it. It was never really meant to be sustainable because if someone, you know, the the short e ARC ETF closes down, maybe maybe those customers will look at putting their money yeah. in another ETF that's managed by the same company, right, Kate? I but you're right. It's a good question. I mean, in the first place, why I, why I love what you just said there, that, 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 that some of these companies are, are putting out these ETFs simply to get attention. That, that's that's, that's, a great, that before, that's right? the right. kind of investment I get pulled into every time, man. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's, yeah, I, yeah. I don't know. Kate, finish it off. I honestly, Tyler, you said it all. By the time it's a thing, it's already a thing, and the value is priced in. So I feel like a lot of these thematic ETFs were just that on steroids. That it's a, a meme ETF, and you're buying at the top. So it's probably a leading indicator that right. you maybe would want to stay away, and it's you kind of miss the boat if it's already fun, a, yeah. an AI ETF, though. Maybe that'll have legs. I <laughs> <Yeah>. mean, <laughs> anyhow, we'll fun to talk, guys. Thank you very much, Kate and uh, Deidre. We appreciate it. Still ahead, shares uh, the chief policy officer of Coinbase will join us uh, for an exclusive interview about the impact yesterday's federal court ruling will have on the crypto industry. Next, the exchange is back after this. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Call it the shot heard around the crypto world, a federal court ruling that the SEC was wrong to deny crypto asset manager Grayscale from converting its Bitcoin trust into a Bitcoin ETF. Bitcoin and Coinbase both spiked on the news, with Coinbase posting its best day in more than a month. But analysts are a little bit divided on what it may mean for the company, City, JMP, and Canaccord in the positive camp, while Mizuho, Barclays, and Oppenheimer less optimistic, with Barclays going so far as to say that a Bitcoin ETF could, quote, result in volumes moving off of Coinbase's exchange. We'll talk about that as we're now uh, in an exclusive exchange uh, with the Coinbase chief policy officer, Faryar Shirzad, and our own Eamon Javers also joins the conversation. Uh, Eamon and Faryar, welcome. Eamon, what does this mean, this decision mean for the SEC and for crypto more broadly? And then, Faryar, I'll turn to you. Well, I think, Tyler, you have to say that this is a big defeat for the SEC, right? They'd wanted to block this on the grounds that it doesn't meet its guidelines for avoiding market manipulation. Now that's struck down. The SEC will have some opportunity here to appeal. We'll see if they do that. So the legal maneuvering here is not necessarily over with necessarily, but it is a big loss for the SEC. And for the crypto industry, it means uh, that the crypto is taken, being taken seriously as a core underlying asset for an ETF now. now 
now you'd be able to, in theory, have the opportunity to buy these ETFs uh, and track the price of Bitcoin without necessarily uh, buying Bitcoin itself if you want to do that. And there's a whole host of questions about whether that's even a good idea and what the impact will be on the ETF market and, of course, what the impact will be on the crypto market if a whole different group of investors now comes into this pool. I'll come back to you, uh, Eamon, in just a minute and let you get a question in for Farrier, but I'll begin with this one. Eamon has laid out a very uh, complex scenario there uh, where this ruling may indeed transform the business of crypto ownership in in major, major ways. So let me ask you two questions. One is, is this good for the crypto business, number one? And two, is this good for Coinbase? In other words, is it going to help your revenues or siphon off some revenues? Look, I think it's a great development. It's a great question and it's a great development. The crypto industry for a bunch number of years has been, has been trying to enter the regulated space and seeking regulatory clarity. We've been trying to do that through working directly with the agencies. We're now in the courts. A number of us are. Grayscale has been. We are as well in trying to get the clarity in the courts. But the real action, I think, ultimately has to be in Congress. You've had two big, important pieces of legislation that got big bipartisan support uh, before the August recess. They're going to come up for a floor vote uh, in the the fall. Uh, We're pretty optimistic that cases like this that demonstrate that the SEC's strategy of regulation by enforcement is ultimately unraveling and that Congress needs to step in and provide the consumer protections federal oversight and uh, and the you know the jobs in the United States that we all ultimately need so uh, we're quite optimistic about what this means for coinbase and for the industry more generally sounds like the SEC is knocking at your door behind you there yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but let me get back to the question about coinbase particularly and then I'll bring in Eamon. Uh, is this good news for coinbase in that if more people migrate away from oin- owning uh, Coinbase and, uh, and and moving into ETFs, does that help or hurt you? Could it help you if you then become the custodian of uh, the coin of the bitcoins of the cryptos? Well, we're the custodian for the uh, for GBTC, so it's an opportunity there. But ultimately, what an ETF means is that it helps facilitate the massive institutional interest that there is in crypto. Mm-hmm. Uh, ETFs are an instrument that are much more familiar and much more um, you know, uh, you know, accessible for uh, asset managers and a whole range of institutional investors who are who have a significant amount of capital that you know we um, are interested in deploying into the space. So uh, I think this is enormously important for um, institutional adoption, which I right. think then allows for broader adoption. Amen. Jump in. Yeah, Faryar, my question was going to be, how do you think about investor protection in this? You have the potential for a whole new group of investors to come in. And typically when you buy an ETF, you know, you're buying a basket of securities, which ultimately have a company behind them. You're buying commodities, which ultimately have a thing behind them, whether it's foodstuffs or raw materials that are used to build something. Here you'll have an ETF in theory, which doesn't have anything but crypto behind it ultimately. Uh, And that can be enormously volatile and risky. How do you make sure that investors are protected from the what could be a, an extreme downside here? Well, you know, you and I have talked in the past about how there's a big re- regulatory turf war in the United States over uh, crypto, uh, and the division has largely been over this security versus commodity issue. Uh, it's an issue that's only alive in the United States because the jurisdiction of the regulators is defined based on whether something is a 
security commodity. There's no dispute about Bitcoin being a commodity. Even the SEC concedes that. Uh, so when you ask what the underlier is, the underlier is a commodity. It's also not a, a commodity that's been adopted by hundreds of millions of people around the world. Uh, the adoption of crypto is, of Bitcoin is enormous. Uh, the interest is deep. The markets are quite liquid. Uh, so it's it's a really you know it's a real thing, and uh, we're excited that there's an ETF uh, product right. that seems to be right. Alas, we have to leave it there. Far yard. We thank you and Eamon Jabbers. Thank you as well. And that does it for the exchange. And let's take a look next door and see where Contessa Brewer is. There she is. She's getting ready. It says right here. And I'll join her on the other side of this break. Thanks for watching. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.